I'm Aaron Hinkin. Welcome to Life in the Balance, a monthly radio program here on WYPR that looks at policy issues through the lens of first-person storytelling. Here's how it works. We build each episode of Life in the Balance around one person's first-hand account of his or her own life, a life which, you might say, hangs in the balance. We listen to that story along with folks from the policy and academic and nonprofit worlds, and then we challenge those thought leaders to share their insights about the larger social and political and economic issues at play. In our uh, eight months on the air so far, Life in the Balance has covered a variety of issues from gun violence to grandparents raising grandchildren to post-incarceration struggles. And you can listen to all those episodes on Apple Podcasts, WYPR's Podcast Central, or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Today, we are turning our attention to an issue that's been getting worse for a while, every day, more than 100 Americans die of opioid overdoses. Opioids are a classification of drugs that include prescription pain relievers, heroin, and synthetic drugs like fentanyl. The misuse of these drugs has become an epidemic across the country. Here's some recent statistics. In 2015, more than 33,000 Americans died from opioid overdoses. The misuse of these drugs has become an epidemic across the country. In 2015, more than 33,000 Americans died from opioid overdoses. As a declared public health crisis, what's being done to combat and address the proliferation of and addiction to opioids? This hour, we'll put that question to Baltimore City Health Commissioner Dr. Lena Wen. But first, I want to introduce you to Daryl Hodge. Mr. Hodge, welcome to the program. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about uh, your background, your life growing up. You're from Baltimore? Yes. Tell me what part of town you grew up in and what your childhood was like. I grew up all over Baltimore in um, basically low-income areas. My mother was a single parent. And um, I remember early on my mother having get-togethers and parties. Uh, Relatives would show up. Her friends would show up. And... um, they would drink, they would smoke cigarettes, and they would party, and it looked like they were having a good time. So um, I had the exposure to the alcohol, which was common, alcohol use. Also, um, during that time, heroin was really big in Baltimore. I think we were like uh, number one in the nation per capita for heroin use. And it was normal in my neighborhood for people to use heroin. Occasionally, you would see somebody shooting up, uh, snorting, or whatever, however they wanted to ingest their um, chemical. And um, you had the crime, and you just had a lot of things. And I was, like, curious at that time. So um, I began to think, I wonder what they're going through, how they're feeling, why do they do it? And um, gradually, I experimented with um, different substances, uh, me and my little clique, we did pills, uh, we did marijuana, uh, we did alcohol, and uh, it kind of went on from there. By the time I was 15 years old, I was introduced to heroin, uh, a little bit of cocaine, but basically heroin. Um, and that's when I first uh, did it intravenously. Uh, later on in life, I was um, introduced to cocaine, 
And it was a better feeling when you did it intravenously or if you smoked. So uh, that's when my problems began. So I went from like good to bad to worse. And uh, things started spiraling out of control. I uh, couldn't keep jobs, stressing my family out. And uh, things just, just really, really just got really bad. And um, the quality, quality of life was really bad also. You said a lot there. Let me uh, sort of backtrack and, and unpack some of those chapters that you just um, uh, reiterated. Um, tell me about the first time you tried heroin. Um, sort of what you remember about that experience and just sort of what uh, sort of locked you into it? Um, I used to see my cousin shoot up. And I used to ask him a lot of questions. Uh, Eventually he said, well, stop asking questions. You want to try it? And um, he shot me up. So that was the first episode. Uh, from then on, occasionally I would get paid. I had a job at 17 years old. I was staying with my aunt, and um, I would get paid. And he'd say, well, we'll put it together and we'll get some heroin. And basically it started like that. Talk to me about um, how quickly and how um, intensely the road to addiction progressed. Uh, well, I would say around the age of 19, uh, instead of occasionally, I started doing it a little more re- uh, regularly with coworkers, uh, friends, and uh, it really wasn't my drug of choice, especially after I started using cocaine and getting that rush. So I would use the um, heroin to maybe level out the cocaine uh, high. And um, I used to uh, hold down pretty good jobs, and then it got to the point where I was missing time and going out on on lunch breaks and not coming back and and so forth. And, uh, you know, uh, relationships going sour and, you know, life just, it just really got bad real quick. And then it got to the point where as I started feeling like um, I was unemployable, my self-esteem was very low, and uh, I started getting hopelessness. I think there were like a five-year span between jobs, and things just really, really, it, it just really looked hopeless. I thought I'd never work again. I thought I'd never be a contributing, responsible human being as I was. You say cocaine was really your drug of choice. That was what really spoke to you. Yes. Talk to me about, um, let me have you share the story of um, of your uh, introduction to that drug specifically and sort of what it was about that drug that, that really um, had an effect on you. I don't remember exactly. Uh, I was snorting, but uh, when I was introduced to uh, the intravenous uh, use and the in the rush that you got the euphoric rush, and it was a feeling that I liked, and I wanted uh, repeated. Uh, then after doing that for a while and really getting sick, I think around that time, uh, my job sent me to a abstinence-based treatment program, 
uh, luckily I had insurance then that would allow me to do so. And uh, it just didn't work for me. You know, abstinence, I needed something long-term, a process. So it didn't work for me. But then, uh, then I got introduced to smoking it. And that was even a bigger rush and a better rush and more accessible. And I didn't have to scar my arms up and so forth. So that's kind of how I got into the cocaine. You spoke about um, various downward spirals uh, yes. happening as a result of your, you know, the, the onset of the addiction, uh, the intensification of the addiction. Um, was there a certain point where um, you... Uh, kind of hit a wall or hit a rock bottom? Was there a precipitating moment where you sort of realized, like, I got I to gotta do something? There were a few, a few. Uh, I'd go, get up a little bit, and then I'd, you know, fall back down, get up a little bit and fall back down. And um, at that particular time, treatment was not very accessible if you didn't have insurance or money. The only thing that was accessible was method, um, medication-assisted programs which it was not enough supply to meet the demand. So you would look for treatment and they turn you away. Uh, they say, come back a few weeks from now or something like that. You can't tell a substance user, chronic substance user that. They'll leave and who knows when they'll show back up. And also there was like a stigmatization and uh, discrimination against methadone clinics and the, uh, the, the clients. And uh, you were made to feel like you uh, were at, like you were at a um, second grade uh, treatment center. Uh, they didn't accept it. Uh, you weren't in recovery if you went to a methadone maintenance program. So that kind of discouraged me, and I stayed away from those programs uh, because of that until I got to the point where is enough is enough. Uh, nothing was working. Anything I did wasn't working. Everything I tried wasn't working, so I was ready to give something else a try. You say uh, back in the day. Uh, give us a sense of uh, your age now and how long ago you were going through this experience. I'm 61 years old, and um, I would say up until maybe uh, 2005, uh, I was going through this. Talk to me about... Um, what did work for you and why, where you went for help and what that process was like? Well, one day a friend of mine, he was uh, ordered to a um, medication assistant facility, you know, by the judge. And uh, he just came back. He came back to some, uh, me and my friends and he said, hey, you know, um, you know the place I went to? Well, I started an intake today and they, they have openings. So lo and behold... Uh, I went and had an appointment for intake, and then that was at Reach Health Services. And uh, that's kind of when I started uh, going upward. How long have you been clean? Uh, clean. Well, I would say about nine going on, on 10 years. Congratulations. Well, thank you. You mentioned Reach. Talk about that program, that acronym <laughs> Uh, and what you're doing there now? Well, Reach Health Services, I went there in about 2005. Uh, I still struggled with other substances. And um, finally, I got to the point where, as I said, you know, it's time to start making some forward progress. 
and, uh, you know, working the treatment plan. And uh, with the support of uh, the staff and some good counselors, uh, I started racking up uh, consecutive uh, negative urinalysis. And uh, after that, I started getting take-homes. I got six. I only had to come once a week. And uh, things really started looking up after that. You are now working as a peer recovery specialist yes. at REACH. Talk about what you do in that capacity. Uh, I help people with their recovery um, to set goals. I mentor. I help them with uh, any resources they may need, any referrals they may need to uh, make lifestyle changes. And I help the counselors. Tell me what that work does to help the folks that you're working with, and tell me what it does to help you. Well, it helps them. Uh, basically, I think they see me as a model. A lot of the people I uh, see are people that I um, attended the program with as a patient. So uh, they kind of look at that. And that has never happened there at REACH. It ha- happens other places, but not at REACH. So I think they look at that as inspiration. And I just try to see them, I mean, let them see that, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel. tunnel. And, of course, the old cliche of, I can do it, you can do it. Daryl Hodge is currently a peer recovery specialist with the organization REACH, Recovery Enhanced by Access to Comprehensive Healthcare. You are tuned to Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Henkin. Our conversation with Mr. Hodge continues after the break, when we'll also bring to the table Baltimore City Health Commissioner Dr. Lena Webb. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Henkin. This hour on the program, the opioid health crisis. More people are dying from opioid overdoses than ever before. Why and what's being done to turn back the tide? Before the break, we met Daryl Hodge, a former user who benefited from the addiction recovery program offered through an organization called REACH. That stands for Recovery Enhanced by Access to Comprehensive Health Care. Mr. Hodge is now a peer recovery specialist who helps other people overcome their addiction and reach their goals. Uh, Mr. Hodge is here with us in this segment of our program as well, and we now welcome to the conversation Dr. Lena Wen, Baltimore City Health Commissioner. And Dr. Wen, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Aaron. Happy to be here and so inspired by Mr. Hodge. Thank you for sharing and thank and you. thank you for for reminding us that treatment exists and recovery is possible. The work that you do every day speaks to that and 
you know, I can talk to people about medically why it's true that addiction is a disease and how recovery is possible. But for you to come and say, I've been where you've been. I walked in your shoes and here's what worked for me and here's how I can help you is just is so important. And so thank you for, for being so here. so nice to be able to say that. Thank you. Dr. Wen, talk about uh, Mr. Hodges' story and how common it is. Um, is this something you hear often in your work? All the time. We see, first of all, that addiction is something that does not discriminate. There isn't a face of addiction. There isn't a certain type of person who gets uh, who has addiction. Uh, for overdose, also, I've treated little children who've gotten into their parents' medicine cabinets for overdosing. I've treated seniors. I mean, addiction doesn't discriminate. And Mr. Hodger's story reminds us that we need to speak about addiction as the disease that it is. We can't talk about it as a choice that someone made. Yes, there are choices and decisions that were made along the way. But at a certain point, addiction becomes a chronic brain disease. And people enter this spiral that Mr. Hodge, you talked about. The spiral often involves losing the trust and confidence of their loved ones, often losing custody of children, losing their homes, losing jobs. And at that point, what we need is to recognize that that person needs treatment. In the same way that if somebody has a heart attack, what needs to be done is that person's life needs to be saved at the moment they're having a heart attack, but then they need long-term treatment. Saving their life and getting their heart starting again is not the only answer. They also have to get into long-term treatment for underlying diabetes or underlying high blood pressure. And it's so important to, to remember that treatment exists, that there is a gold standard for treatment, which is medication-assisted treatment, as Mr. Hodge mentioned, combined with psychosocial counseling, combined with other wraparound services like housing. But if people can access those treatment at the time that they are requesting it, not weeks or months from now, then there is a path that recovery is possible. And millions of people around the country, like Mr. Hodge, are in long-term recovery and can attest to how they can get their lives back. Dr. Wen, uh, you put a lot on the table here. Let's uh, go back through some of this uh, one item at a time. You talk about addiction as a brain disease. Uh, help us understand the power of the physical aspects of addiction. Um, it, we've come a long way, it seems, in being able to understand that this is not a moral shortcoming, uh, but a physical um, disease. Um, what's happening in the body of someone who's in the grips of an opioid addiction that makes it so powerful? Opioids derive from opium, the poppy seed. And these are some of the most addictive substances that exist on Earth. Studies have shown that opioids work by binding to brain receptors that then trigger euphoria and the sense of well-being, the so-called high. And there are studies have also shown that there are chronic changes in the brain in someone who becomes addicted. That's why we have to recognize that it's a chronic disease, like diabetes, like heart disease. And yet we don't say to somebody who has diabetes, why are you in the hospital? Why do you still need to be on medications? Can't you just be on insulin for a month and you're done? Can't you just have change your lifestyle and that's fine? We don't say that for any other illness. And yet we do that for the disease of addiction because we are not recognizing that it causes similar biological changes as other illnesses do. But I think there's something that you said, Aaron, that I, I, that needs to be emphasized. You talked about how 
now there is this shift to understand the addiction as a disease and not a moral failing. And I think a lot of that has to deal with who it is who are dying from overdose now. When it was people in our communities here in Baltimore City who were dying, when it was black and brown people in poor minority communities who were dying from the crack epidemic, from the, from the heroin epidemic, it was seen as a moral defect or a choice. And therefore, if you end up dead or in jail, it's your fault. But now that it's affecting white communities, rural communities, other places that are new to the opioid epidemic, relatively newer to the, to the opioid epidemic, now we're seeing now that you can treat and go and check yourself into a, into a clinic and get needed treatment, which, of course, addiction is a disease and you need treatment for it. But I also think that we would be we would be dishonest with ourselves and our legacies if we don't recognize the structural racism and inequities that got us to where we are. I'm glad you bring those points up. And uh, the statistics uh, do show that, uh, you know, use and abuse is common across all demographics, race, class, geography. Uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I, I understand that Baltimore County has an incredibly high number of opioid overdoses, overdoses uh, a close second to Baltimore City here in the state of Maryland. Um, is that correct? Am I correct in understanding that? All across Maryland, we are affected by the opioid epidemic. All across the country, we are affected by the opioid epidemic. However, Baltimore City is still a third of all the overdose deaths in the state of Maryland. We don't have a third of the population of the state of Maryland, and so we are still disproportionately affected. And that's why funding and resources, including to fund peer recovery specialists like Mr. Hodge, those resources should be targeted to areas like ours that are the hardest hit. That's the basic principle of public health. If you have a bridge collapsing somewhere, you don't say, let's have let's fix bridges everywhere in the country. Let's hope that the disaster and the crisis where we are the hardest hit. Dr. Wen, when you first became health commissioner here, one of the uh, first things you did was to issue a blanket prescription for the opioid antidote naloxone uh, to all residents of Baltimore. Um, talk about what naloxone is and how you use it. There are very few complete antidotes in modern medicine. Naloxone is one of them. Naloxone, also called Narcan, it binds to the receptors in the brain that opioids would otherwise bind to. And so it completely blocks those receptors. And I'm an emergency physician, and in the ER, I've given naloxone hundreds of times. Somebody who is overdosing and would otherwise be dead, they'll be walking and talking again within seconds to minutes. Ever since I issued the blanket prescription for naloxone in our city, and we've done trainings in really in every part of our city, everyday residents have saved the lives of over 1,785 other residents in our city. Mr. Hodge, let me turn back to you for a minute. Um, talk about the people that you help now as a peer recovery specialist. Are they familiar with naloxone? Have they been saved by it? Uh, yes, they have. Um, we've trained many of the uh, clients uh, where I work. Uh, to use it, to administer it. Uh, they have them in their home medicine cabinets. Uh, they carry it on their person. And I think it's really um, monumental that we have this. Just like you have CPR, then we need the Narcan or the Naloxone available so that we can save lives on the spot instead of waiting for paramedics Whereas, you know, somebody might die between the time they get there and so forth. But yes, we're quite aware. Dr. Wen, naloxone, obviously one prong of a much larger strategy that you've spoken about, even just in this conversation, uh, the other part of that strategy being much longer term uh, solutions to addiction. 
Let me ask you, in terms of stigma, um, what you think about what you've heard Mr. Hodge say about the stigma involved in um, methadone programs, um, people who say that's not really recovery. Uh, where, what is your stance on that? Well, my, st- my stance is the stance of science. I don't have my own opinion on the topic. I'm a physician and scientist and public health official, and I have the stance of a- every major medical organization and dozens and dozens of studies, which is that there is a gold standard for opioid addiction treatment. And that gold standard is a combination of medication-assisted treatment with the three FDA-approved medications of methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone, combined with psychosocial counseling, combined with wraparound services. What an individual needs depends on them. In the same way that some patients with diabetes, let's say, may be fine with lifestyle changes alone. Others require insulin. Others require oral medications and lifestyle changes. I mean, people are different. We need to make all the forms of the gold standard of treatment available to all patients who need them without other barriers in the way, like duration limits. We don't have duration limits for insulin for diabetes. Why do we impose these arbitrary limits for individuals with the disease of addiction? There is huge stigma and misunderstanding. I will often hear people say, well, taking methadone or buprenorphine is quote-unquote replacing one addiction with another. I hate saying it because I feel like it's perpetuating the stigma even to say those words because we would never say that for any other illness. We would never say to somebody, why for your blood pressure are you still on medications? Why can't you just change your diet alone? It's replacing one one disease or one, one illness with another if you're just taking medications for your high blood pressure. We don't say that. And yet we say that about the disease of addiction all the time. Even former Secretary of Health and Human Services, Tom Price, who's a physician, made the comment about medication-assisted treatment being replacing one drug with another. That's why we need everyone's help. We need people like Mr. Hodge talking about his own experience. We also need everyone in the community talking about how addiction is a disease that needs to be treated the same way as we would other diseases, that we need to save somebody's life at the moment that they're dying from overdose, and then we have to get them into long-term treatment with what science and medicine show to be effective. This scientifically rooted understanding is where you want to get people to. How often are the people that walk in the door seeking your help understanding their situation as a medical uh, health issue, a public health issue? I think that after a while of their treatment uh, and talking to their counselors, through the counselors they can understand that. Uh, Many of them come in and they realize that it's really time to do something. Uh, I've talked to people who have uh, been brought back by naloxone and um, they got a new new lease on life, and uh, they're encouraged to make some changes. It was like, well, this is it. This is waking you know waking me up. Dr. Wen, before I let you go, I want to zoom out and talk nationally with you for a moment. Recently, more than two dozen bills uh, aimed at ending the uh, opioid epidemic were introduced uh, to the House. Uh, what kinds of solutions are these bills proposing, and uh, what's your take on them, and uh, the fact that the president has recently said he will uh, be in favor of the death penalty for drug dealers? Well, there's a lot in your in your question. So um, well, I'll start with what our congressional leaders have proposed. There are many bills, as you stated, um, that aim to get at the opioid crisis in some way. 
And in some ways, I'm glad that the opioid epidemic is getting national attention. A bit too late in, for many of the individuals who have died here in Baltimore City, but at least it's getting some national attention. My concern is that the bills are all tinkering around the edges. They might get at a couple of policies that might do some good in some way, but that's not what we need. We need to recognize that we have a national epidemic that we don't have even close to the infrastructure that we need to get to treatment on demand nationally. The Surgeon General's report in 2016 found that only 1 in 10 people with the disease of addiction are able to get treatment. 1 in 10. For what other disease would we find that to be even remotely acceptable? We don't just need a bill to change a policy here or there. We need a specific, concrete, and sustained commitment to funding. Nearly 30 years ago, Congress approved the Ryan White funding for HIV-AIDS, recognizing that this is an epidemic, that we have an opportunity to to treat and prevent and do research and education around HIV-AIDS. We need a Ryan White for the opioid epidemic. We need something in large scale that will address the problem at the root, not just tinker around the edge. President Trump's proposal frightens me. It's a proposal that will increase criminal penalties to include the death penalty for individuals with the disease of addiction. This goes against what we know from science to be true, which is that criminal penalties have not shown to reduce addiction or reduce drug use. What we need is not just focusing on the supply side. We need to reduce the demand for drugs by increasing access to treatment. Otherwise, that demand for drugs will continue to fuel supply. And I think the president has an opportunity now to say, I hear from the experts and I hear from those of us on the front lines, from those on the front lines, including Baltimore City and my counterparts across the country. They are telling me that it's whatever they're doing is working. We're saving lives with naloxone. We're connecting people into treatment. We can save lives. Let's give the resources that these communities really need in order to turn the tide on this epidemic. And I hope that President Trump will go in that direction rather than bring back the war on drugs that has already resulted in incarcerating generations of poor minorities in communities like ours and decimating the network and the fabric of our community. Baltimore City Health Commissioner Dr. Lena Wen here in studio along with peer recovery specialist Daryl Hodge of REACH, Recovery Enhanced by Access to Comprehensive Healthcare. Dr. Wen, Mr. Hodge, thank you both for speaking with us today. Thank you. Thank you. On another front in the battle against opioid addiction, more than 200 municipalities and states and cities are pursuing legal action against the country's largest prescription drug distributors. Hagerstown is the latest Maryland community to do so. We will speak with Hagerstown Councilwoman Emily Keller about what's motivating that lawsuit. That's next on Life in the Balance. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. I'm Aaron Henkin. You're tuned to Life in the Balance. This episode, we've been looking at the opioid epidemic. According to the Maryland Department of Health, the state experienced 1,501 opioid-related deaths from January to September last year. And some people are saying enough is enough. Someone needs to be held accountable. And that someone, they say, is Big Pharma, the nation's largest pharmaceutical drug corporations. More than 200 municipalities and counties and states are pursuing legal action against pharmaceutical companies. Baltimore is one of them. WYPR reporter Dominique Maria Benessi reported on the city's decision a few weeks ago, by the way. And you can hear that story online at WYPR.org. Right now, though, we welcome to the program Councilwoman Emily Keller of Hagerstown. Hagerstown is the latest Maryland community to join the lawsuit against Big Pharma. And Councilman Keller joins us by phone from Hagerstown. And Councilwoman, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You, as I understand it, are leading this charge in Hagerstown against big pharmaceutical companies and their role in the opioid crisis. What does your lawsuit say and what are your grounds for making the case? Well, uh, like you said, we're joining nearly 200 municipalities, counties and states uh, to go after big pharma. Their negligence really helped lead to the epidemic we're currently facing. So uh, we have a local attorney group that's pairing up with a national attorney group Um, that is going to join in this lawsuit. And, um, you know, there was just a lot of things, not a lot of negligence done by by Big Pharma. People like uh, companies like Purdue Pharma had hired, you know, hundreds of pharmaceutical reps specifically to sell OxyContin. They downplayed the addictiveness of it. The advertising campaign was so aggressive, it was kind of hard to get away from, from hearing about these drugs. And it led to this crisis that we're facing. So, here we are, places like Hagerstown and so many other areas are just not equipped to deal with this, and we don't have the money. Our community is suffering, our quality of life is suffering, and these companies are profiting billions of dollars. It's, it's just not not fair. Councilwoman, for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with Hagerstown, paint a picture of where you are in Maryland, what your demographics are, and uh, talk in a little bit more specificity about how the opioid crisis has taken its toll in your town. Well, we are in western Maryland, so Washington County. Uh, when you look at Maryland on a map, we are that very small part up mm-hmm. <laughs> in, the, in the western part. And um, we are about 10 minutes from Pennsylvania, 10 minutes from West Virginia, and 20 minutes from Virginia. So we have a very unique area where you can travel across state lines very easily, which has added to our problem for, for, for people who are doctor shopping. But for Hagerstown, you know, we only have a population of 45,000 people, and um, we've had hundreds of overdoses, about 49 deaths last year. In, in our county, Washington County, there were 142 substance-exposed newborns in fiscal year 17. So, I mean, we are just being, being hammered by, by this epidemic. How new is this problem for Hagerstown? I mean, it's it's really gotten worse over the last several years. I would say when you look at statistics, the last three years has gotten worse, and it's getting worse each year. Uh, we have more people trained to carry Narcan, more just citizens, regular citizens trained to carry Narcan in our county than any other place in the state with the exception of Baltimore City. And, of course, Baltimore City's population is significantly larger than, than ours, so it's that kind of puts it into perspective how bad the problem is. Councilwoman, uh, lawsuits are about economic damages. Of course, talk uh, talk to us about those 
economic damages and the different ways the uh, opioid crisis takes its toll in uh, in dollars lost in Hagerstown? Well, if you don't think it's affected you, especially in our area, it has. You know, our law enforcement, our fire department, our EMS, I mean, the, the cost to them alone is significant. I mean, they are running more calls. They're busy. Our, our ambulance services run hundreds more calls because of this. So the, the cost in, in law enforcement and public safety alone is, is astronomical. But, you know, our businesses have faced the cost of it due to workers' comp claim, lost productivity, a decreasing workforce. And, of course, our citizens are facing the cost of it, you know, even indirect costs, the quality of life, uh, decreasing property values because less people are working. It, it's just a it's a very tangled web, unfortunately, of, of a trickle-down effect, let alone our school system. I mean, our school system has children who are facing problems at home. Our grandparents and other relatives are raising children because the parents are either are either addicted to opioids or other drugs, or they've they've lost their life because of it. So not only is it affecting the adults that are are facing this addiction and are struggling and don't have the proper treatment if they want to seek it, but it is affecting our younger generation because there's either not parents at home or there are struggles at home, and they have to go to school and are expected to learn just like every other child. It's really a, a fortunate situation all the way around. Councilwoman Keller, uh, you and uh, leaders in other municipalities, towns, cities across the country are laying this at the doorsteps of Big Pharma. How are the companies responding to these lawsuits and and the others that have been uh, leveled against them? Well, from what I've read, there have been some um, some fines that were already laid out for for pretty much false advertising and. But it, it's just, it's such a small amount. You know, they're profiting billions of dollars, and they've paid out maybe a couple million in fines. It's nowhere near the economic impact that they've had because of these drugs. So I, I would expect them, just like Big Tobacco was when they were facing lawsuits back in the early 90s, I, I would assume that they're going to push back pretty hard because anytime you go after someone's wallet, they're going to be upset about it. But, I mean, they're 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 just absolute negligence on their behalf and then now for stepping in and treating or their lack of treating the problem that they helped create it's unacceptable what are you hoping will be the result of the lawsuit and uh, and if it goes in your favor what are you going to do with the money if you win well there are a lot of different different things that we need um one, the money needs to go towards supporting public safety so they can do what they were designed to do. But more importantly, we need treatment and we need education. When someone says, I'm ready to get help, there needs to be a place for them to go immediately. Um, right now, just speaking specifically to Washington County and Hagerstown, and I know it's like this in most places, our mental health services are on several-week backup. Um, the places that do have treatment options are, are jam-packed. I mean, they're, they're busy. And we don't have an inpatient facility anywhere close to here. So that, that is a problem. And then we need education. You know, when, when people found out cigarettes were bad for you, what did we do? We, there were anti-cigarette ads everywhere, on the radio, on billboards, in schools. You signed papers in schools saying you wouldn't smoke. We don't do that with opioids yet. So we, while we need to save and, and help repair the people who are suffering, we need to stop the younger generation from going down this same path. And right now we're not doing that. So it, the problem is really bad, in my opinion. I don't think we've reached the peak of how bad it is going to get. So, of course, when we when we hopefully get that money from these companies that help cause it, we'll, we'll do 
will do both of those things, help the people who are suffering and educate our youth so they don't go down that same path. In the meantime, um, before any sort of decision gets reached, um, talk about how stretched thin you are then uh, in Hagerstown in terms of dealing with this problem and what kind of help there is right now uh, for folks in your town who are struggling with opioid addiction. Well, I, I could say with confidence that we do have so many people who are, are stepping up in organizations who are just searching for answers and searching for solutions to this problem. The issue is there just isn't money to do it. I mean, we sit in meetings all the time and, and think about how many people we could help, but the lack of funding is, is, is bad. Our health department had to go fee-for-service, as all health departments did, which severely affected their, their budget. Um, other companies... The, the reality of it is a lot of the people who need help are on Medicaid, and Medicaid doesn't really pay for treatment. And so there's just not money to be made, which is a frustrating thing because, in my opinion, how do you put a value on a human life? I, I just I understand money makes the world go round. <clears throat> but here we are talking about, well, we can't open this facility or we can't do that because there's no money in it. It's it, And it's frustrating because I, I don't want a facility that makes money. I want one that goes out of business because it did its job. <laughs> but um, it, it, it's just a, it's a very tough situation here. And it, I don't think anywhere was equipped to deal with this problem. But when you compare a place like Hagerstown with 45,000 people to Baltimore City, for example, Baltimore City has been dealing with drug addiction for a long time. They have facilities. They have detox. They have inpatient and and they're getting hammered as well. And I, but we don't have those resources. But you know we don't have detox capability here. We don't have inpatient here. So it's it's a different it's a different f- battle that we're fighting because we we just didn't have those resources before. We don't have them now. And you know where's that money going to come from? It's 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 frustrating. Councilwoman, can you lay out your case a little bit more? and draw the line of connection between the producers and distributors of pharmaceutical drugs and the addiction that results. I mean, the defense, I imagine, would be drug companies saying, we make these as medicines, they're prescribed by doctors, they're meant for, you know, a broken arm or curing some sort of acute pain, and, you know, we can't be held responsible for people who, you know, misuse these medicines here's the thing with with purdue pharma for example um they hired hundreds of pharmaceutical reps to sell oxycontin they went on a marketing campaign stating that it wasn't addictive and that it worked for 12 hours well it is in fact addictive and it does not work for 12 hours then they downplayed the addictiveness of oxycontin so we have doctors prescribing a pill that they assume is supposed to work for pain for 12 hours and is not going to cause their patient to get addicted when it, it in fact it did cause them to get addicted. You know, there's different studies done, but pretty much all of them state that 75 to 82 percent of heroin users begin with prescription pills. So that's a that's a pretty large number. <laughs> I've interviewed many people who um, talk about the fact that they switch to heroin simply because it's cheaper and easier to get. 
Yes, absolutely. And when you can't, when the doctor can no longer prescribe you the medicine and they don't feel like you need it, you get sick. So much like people who, who suffer from alcohol withdrawal and it makes you sick and you, you detox from it and it's not a pleasant experience, it's the same way with opioids. So it's easy for people who have never been in that position to sit back and say, well, just stop. But I could tell you we wouldn't be in this position if people could just stop. It's, it's, it's not that easy. You know, no one wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, I think I'm going to decide to stick a needle in my arm today. It's, it's, it's a process that's led there, and a lot of the times it, it is due to a pill that they trusted to make them better. I mean, look at these high school kids that are, are football players or volleyball players, and they go and they, they blow their knee out or they have a minor surgery or even a dental surgery, and they're given this opioid pain pill, and and I don't know about you, but when I was 18, 19, if a doctor prescribed me something, I assumed it was safe. I mean, I, I'm 32 and I still feel that way. But unfortunately, what's happening is that they're taking these prescriptions, they run out, and then they're sick, and they try to get more. And that leads back to what I mentioned about us being so close to different states. You know, People are doctor shopping. They're going from Maryland to Pennsylvania to West Virginia and then when they run out of options or run out of money, they turn to heroin. And it's just the complete negligence on, on these pharmaceutical companies or drug distributors that for not portraying the message clearly as to what these drugs can do, or even now taking responsibility and saying, hey, we're going to try to fix it. I mean, it's it's just absurd. And people are desperate all over. and And it's not just young people. It's not just you know, a certain age group or a certain demographic. I mean, it, it definitely does not discriminate. I know that our ambulance service has run um, overdose calls for people as young as 12 and as old as 90, where Narcan was was used. Wow. So it's it's <laughs> it, it it can affect everyone, and it is affecting everyone, and that's that's why we're we're trying to make them take responsibility and help pay for for this that they created, helped create for sure. Hearing you lay things out in that way really makes me think that we're in some ways at a fundamental conflict of interests here as a country. Our institutions, medical institution and the pharmaceutical companies, I mean, there's the Hippocratic Oath on one hand, uh, which is to do no harm and um, all of the ethical guidelines that lead medical practitioners. And then there is... The bottom line and the, you know, the capitalistic uh, quest for profit by the companies that supply them with the medications that they use to treat their patients. I know money is important and, and people don't go into business to lose money. And obviously they were making huge, huge profits on this. But what, how do you put a value on the damage that's done? I mean, how do you sleep at night knowing it's gotten this far and there still hasn't been a resolution? It's scary to think about. We've been speaking with Hagerstown Councilwoman Emily Keller about Hagerstown's decision to join the lawsuit against big pharmaceutical companies. And a Councilwoman, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you for having me and thank you for covering this very important topic.
That's going to wrap things up for today's episode of Life in the Balance. If you or someone you know is in need of resources and treatment for opioid addiction, this is the 24-hour addiction hotline in Baltimore. The number, 410-433-5175. And to learn more about prevention, treatment, and the basics of administering naloxone, the prescription medicine that can stop an overdose, please visit Don't Die. Life in the Balance is an original production of WYPR and is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. If you have questions or comments about the show, drop us a note at lifeinthebalance at wypr.org. You can download this show and listen to previous episodes at wypr.org slash podcast central. I'm Aaron Hankin. Thanks for listening.